The following has been brought to you by SJP World Media. And a huge, big, special pay-per-view, World War 3. Welcome to WCW Nitro Nights with Cy and Scottish Danny. My name is Cy, and with me as always, as we fast approach the end of what has been a sometimes turgid run in 1995 WCW, is the always brilliant, always entertaining, always inquisitive Scottish Danny. How are you, sir? I'm doing really well, thank you, sir. How's yourself? Yeah, not too bad, mate. Not too bad. Just a little bit of clarity for people listening. I've already explained to you, Danny, obviously. But my hay fever and my allergies are kicking my ass today. So if I sound a bit wheezy or a bit sniffly or a bit grotty at any stage, I apologise to everybody out there. Hopefully it will not affect us too much, bud. It shouldn't, it shouldn't. It's crap, isn't it? <laughs> but today we are here to have a look at our our latest pay-per-view offering but from wcw we have reached the end of november 1995 in our watch back in date order and we are greeted with the world war three pay-per-view the first one of its kind it originated from the uh from norfolk virginia it was listed as being sold out, which is an attendance of 12,000. I mean, they, they say sold out, but in reality, it was more like just over 8,000 actually paid for their tickets. The rest of them didn't have to pay. So lucky them, I guess. And it received around dollars $112,000 at the live gate with 110 buys on pay-per-view. A unique concept from WCW here, a, a different type of match that we didn't haven't seen before this event is the main event, and it's a 60-man, three-ring battle royal, the winner being crowned the new WCW world champion. Danny, lots to get through, bud, lots to get through, so we will crack on straight away. What did you think of the intro, the beginning of the show, and then ultimately the first thing we see, which is... um. 
something that's been mentioned a few times on Twitter. People are quite excited to hear our opinions on this weird Sting Hogan Macho Man promo. Yep. Um, so just to start off, the entire arena just looked great, didn't it? I really liked the color scheme. Mm-hmm. Um, just the presentation of the three rings together was looked really cool as well. And um, yeah, that um, that segment was uh, five stars, shall we say, Sai. <laughs> observe this brother <laughs> just a recap basically well first of all the, the intro to the show is is very very 90s very colorful etc and even as they're running the promo talking about what's going coming up on the pay-per-view that people have already bought it's listed at the bottom as saying card is subject to change still as they're going into the actual live broadcast which is unusual we then get tony Schiavone on commentary with Bobby the Brain Heenan, and he's plugging CompuServe, which was like an internet computer provider way back when. And apparently you could electronically talk and message with WCW superstars. So I imagine it's some sort of early runners for what became internet chat rooms and and, and messengers and, and MySpace messenger or whatever it may well have been, I suppose. Very much of its time, but at the same time, in 95, I suppose quite groundbreaking really, Danny. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, I don't think the WWF was doing uh, anything like this. If they were, it wasn't on this level. Um, I like that idea as well. Uh, you could, you can probably talk to um, Mark Miro or Buff Bagwell. I doubt they would have Hulk Hogan on the line. <laughs> yeah, it's, again, it's the forerunner to, I suppose, the internet chat rooms that exploded for a short period in the late 90s and then obviously got shut down because they were being used for, you know, means that we don't need to discuss here, I guess. But um, yeah, it, it was really interesting. A little snippet of the time for me. But the show starts, as we said, with Hulk Hogan, Randy Savage and Sting. And they're there with Mean Gene Oakland, who's in and, out, in and out this show a great deal, Mean Gene. He's a very, very busy boy on this pay-per-view. And Hogan is still dressed in his black. And they're doing their usual, I, I suppose, overexcited, cocaine-fueled ranting. And Hogan then starts to peel off the black to reveal the red and yellow is back. He's come back from the dark side, apparently. Uh, Sting saying that he's always believed and Savage saying that he's sorry he's made a mistake to Sting. And he's always believed in Hogan and they, they're a united front against the Dungeon of Doom and all this sort of stuff. And then Hogan goes a bit crazy with, with some paper in his hands. Do you want to talk us through a little bit of this, Danny? Observe this, brother. <laughs> no, no um, yeah, he just goes absolutely insane, doesn't he? And um, he kind of goes on a tirade. Um, I'm not sure if he did this on his own or if Eric Bischoff, noted hated or noted hater of Dave Meltzer, told him to do this. But um, I found it re- really entertaining. Um, and then he kind of just compares the Observer to a dinosaur, where. I think a dinosaur is more relevant than the Observer. What do you think, Sai? <laughs> See, it's funny because uh, Dave Meltzer gets a lot, of, a lot of stick, doesn't he? Gets a lot of grief, and, and some of it comes from me. I'm not going to lie, uh, but <laughs> at the same time, the guy does know what he's on about when he when he's you know writing articles about certain topics. He can be an interesting read. It's when he tries to give the you know the insider tips and all that sort of stuff and what's going on behind the scenes and so on it sometimes can be a bit i don't know he can be quite an irritating character i guess he's become a bit of a parody of himself as well but i mean there are certain things he has wrote about especially like historical articles talking about you know past events and so on that's quite interesting that's quite good you know his work there is 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 very good 
but yeah, the whole dirt sheet side of things and, um, Oh, I've spoken to my, my sources and all that sort of stuff. It's like, Oh mate, have a day off. But yeah. at the same time, pre-internet, those sort of dirt sheets and the magazines and, and, and so on, they were gold. I remember being a kid and buying superstars of wrestling here in the UK in the early nineties, just as I started to, you know, sort of learn how wrestling worked. And it was such an eye opener for me, all these out of, uh, out of character or, or non kayfabe articles and discussions. And there's a letter section in the back. And superstars of wrestling eventually became power slam magazine ran by the same person, the, the awesome, uh, the awesome Finley Martin, absolutely top, top bloke, really, really, you know, really influential in my, my wrestling fandom as a kid. It was a life source for, for wrestling fans who wanted knowledge. So I appreciate for, for a certain period in time, these things were very, very important to wrestling fans. But once the internet sort of came out and exploded in the way it did, it does make quite a difference because if, you, if you're putting anything out there in print, it becomes out of date very quickly and, and so on. Hogan here, I'm not 100% sure what, it, what, what the point is he's trying to make. He's quite cross that Meltzer has let slip a few things in the in the Observer. And, you know, observe this, he says quite often, referring to this this bit of paper in his hand as a rag sheet. And apparently he says that's what we call these backstage, a rag sheet. And a couple of comments he makes I find very interesting. He says that in this rag sheet, they say the Giant will be winning the title. So we're going to make sure that's not right and, and so on. I'm paraphrasing a bit here. But basically that then, for me, foretells the, the, the finish of of the main event not not completely even there's 59 other competitors but it basically says straight away the, the dave mounts is predicting the giant so wcw are going to do everything they can to make sure that doesn't come true the giant isn't winning so that outrules the giant for me straight away so that's had an adverse effect there with what hogan's saying but the oddest one is hogan's really really cross that they're reporting that the macho man has an arm injury and it's going to hamper him and he's going to struggle and and, and it's a real serious arm injury with Hogan saying that's nonsense, that's bullshit, Savage is good to work. But he, he did have a legit arm injury. You know, Meltzer was reporting that the, the, the angle that had, had a, I suppose, a kayfabe, I suppose, on-screen arm injury where Luger attacked Savage was, was done to cover up a real-life arm injury Savage has. Hogan was then on-screen saying, effectively saying, no, he hasn't got a real arm injury. So you're wrong, Dave Meltzer. So on one hand, he's then saying that the whole Luger aspect is a work just for the TV. But he's also wrong as well because Savage genuinely had a tricep tear at this time. He was genuinely injured. So it just it just baffled me, the whole scenario. So what are you trying to get at here? You know, it was absolute nonsense. I mean, what did what with, with that sort of knowledge in mind, Danny, the fact that the arm injury was legit. Meltzer was actually correct in what he was reporting and Hogan was trying to say no and, and all this sort of stuff. What are your thoughts on, on this whole segment? And then ultimately when they get a little bit crazy with the fire in the dustbin. <laughs> well, first off, are you accusing Hulk Hogan of killing Kayfabe, Si? Well, there's a lot of things we can accuse Hulk Hogan of, I think, sir. <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, yeah, I completely see your points you made. Um, 
why did he like? I, I don't understand it either. It's like he just he felt like he was almost going off the script uh, for part of this, especially with the Macho Man arm injury and things like that. It was like this didn't really fit on the pay per view. Maybe this could have been saved for the pre show. I think it would have been a be- bit better. Yeah, potentially. Potentially. I mean, it's something that WCW did a great deal of in their pay per views, out with their TV, to be fair. They sort of have the fireworks go off and you're know, welcome to whatever show and so on. And then the crowd almost has to sit back down and wait whilst they run through an interview segment or a promo or adverts or anything like that. But I mean, with this aspect, they got three of the biggest stars in the company out in front of the live crowd straight away. So I suppose I, I can figure out why they've done that. But it was just surreal, wasn't it? And and they're throwing the, Hogan's black gear and this bit of paper in a dustbin that's burning away in front of them. And Hogan's not thrown his stuff in quite right. So it's half hanging out the bin. So the fire is getting a little bit out of hand. Sting's trying to put it out with a bottle of water. And it's just really, really strange. I mean, Hogan's, the giant was one of the favorites for the main event. The way Hogan spoke in this opening segment, he's made it very clear. The giant's not going to win the main event. now. Why did he show up? Well, <laughs> it's just a really surreal moment in in wrestling history in general, I think. Uh, acknowledging the Observer and someone live on a pay-per-view, and especially from Hulk Hogan himself, is, is just a really, really surreal moment. It's really strange, especially when you look back at the time in wrestling it was, when business wasn't fully exposed yet. It was kind of, it was a really strange, strange segment, I think, Danny. It really was. Um, I'm wondering if it leads to a Hulk Hogan versus Dave Meltzer match at the next pay-per-view. Well, well, you know, I'm not going to give any spoilers away, bud. We'll have to wait. Starcade coming up. That's a main event anywhere in the world, isn't it? Meltzer Hogan. Yeah, (laughs) especially if he was in Japan. Yeah, it'd be 47 stars in Japan. Um, (laughs) Our opening contest is, as always, with all opening contests in what seems like the history of time, Johnny B. Bad. <laughs> He's in every opening contest ever. Uh, and he is facing Diamond Dallas Page defending his, uh, sorry, Johnny B. Bad defending his television title. We got a little bit of a promo package showing the, the Diamond Doll, Kimberly, DDP's valet and, and real life wife, being quite fed up with Page's actions and constantly requesting that she she rates him out of 10 for his moves, and etc., etc. And this is, I suppose, uh, the first, whilst the guys are wrestling in the ring, the first real proper in-ring camera shots of the three-ring setup. So we get to see it from a little bit more of a lower angle and, and how it's working with the guys actually in the ring, putting on a match in one of the, the, the three rings there. How did you find this now, this very unique view with matches actually going on in the ring, Danny? I found it actually really uh, interesting because it's like the first time you switch on something like TNA and you see a completely different thing to rather than the same squared circle in the ring. Um, I found that uh, this just artistically just popped out immediately. Um, Yeah. Yeah, no, fair enough. Fair enough. One thing I took away from it was certain camera angles where, I mean, for those who haven't seen the setup here, for those who have never seen this event, you basically got three rings, but they're not in a row. They're in almost like a, I suppose a zigzag or, or, or a U shape. And, and they're, the Johnny B. Bad and Diamond Dallas Page are working in the middle ring, which is set quite a bit lower than the top two rings, which are parallel. 
So it sort of forms like the points of a triangle, I guess. And certain camera angles cutting across the ring they're working in, you can then see the ring they're not working in behind. The crowd from that point of view seems quite far away because they're an extra ring's width distance from the action. However, there was a little section that was in between the two, I suppose, two top rings, for want of a better term, as we're looking from the hard cam, where there's a gap in between the two rings because it coincides with where the middle ring is. And there's about 20 seats that are just running into that section. And I thought, man, when the Battle Royal starts, how bloody great are those seats? Because they are literally to the left of them, to the right of them, in front of them, surrounded by the, by the wrestling. It's almost like you're sat in the middle of the Battle Royal, aren't you? Yeah, definitely. Uh, that's a great point as well, because um, they'd probably have to pay a pretty penny for that, uh, those type of seats, wouldn't they? I would have thought so. I would have thought... Well, actually, I don't know. I don't know. I, initially, I would have thought so. But then there was 4,000 seats left unsold for this event. So who knows who bought what? <laughs> who knows? <laughs> Um, Diamond Dallas Page's ring gear here is bloody terrible, isn't it? Peak worst um, of his career, even worse than his um, 2002 run with uh, just a plain leather uh, trousers. But um, yeah, I didn't like it at all. Yeah, it was like blue and and then it had bits of black and then it had these lime green diamonds on. But they didn't look like... They were supposed to be diamonds, but they weren't drawn in that way. They were just the rough shape so it looked like just a green splotch and yeah very very strange very strange but ultimately danny i mean we'll talk through a couple of points of that match in a moment but ultimately i thought as an opener to get the crowd off their feet and get everything going i thought this was bloody great what were your thoughts yeah pretty much the same um this was a the right match to open with um yeah, it was very. It was a fresh crowd so they just popped for a lot of stuff here but um yeah i really enjoyed this match too yeah, I, I thought it was great. I thought it was great. We get a little bit more cowardly action from, from Diamond Dallas Page using Kimberly as a shield to stop Johnny B. Bad hitting her, him. Uh, there's a few moments that I suppose don't quite work. For example, Diamond Dallas Page tries to kick Johnny B. Bad when he's down on all fours, misses, and apparently he's tried to kick him so hard that he ends up you know falling over. He basically takes a flat back bump because he's missed a kick, which looked a bit... I suppose a little bit comical, a little bit uh, Three Stooges esque, I suppose, but that was a bit strange, wasn't it? Yeah, definitely. But it was on brand for um, Paige at this time as well. Yeah, yeah, fair point, fair point. Uh, we get a few more moves from Johnny B. Bad. Kimberly then gets a, one of the, the signs out that is used normally to rate Diamond Dallas Page, but this one says 10 plus, and she gives Johnny B. Bad a 10 plus. We get some nice stuff as well as we come into the close of the match. There's a tombstone spot here that leads to just a straightforward punch from Johnny B. Bad, but he's an ex-boxer. So, of course, you know, if you're an ex-boxer and you throw a punch in wrestling, your opponent has to act like it's literally killed him. And <laughs> Johnny B. Bad follows that up with a, a flip sort of swanton maneuver to the outside, throws Paige back in the ring, hits his incredibly amazing, brilliant-looking over-the-top rope leg drop uh, and wins and retains his championship. And then Kimberly afterwards hugs Johnny B. Bad and they kind of leave together, don't they? Yeah, they left uh, DDP in the, in the dust because um, I was quite shocked that a leg drop actually won this match, knowing the fact that Hulk Hogan was on this card as well. Maybe it was a tribute to him. Maybe, maybe, maybe uh, Mark Miro or Johnny B. Bad is like a huge closet Hulk Hogan fan, but he can't, you know, 
admit that publicly because of the whole, the whole you know, racism thing with Hogan's. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> but I think, again, we mentioned it on a previous episode of Nitro Nights, Danny. I think Johnny B. Bad is an absolute star again here. He looks incredible. He's full of charisma. The crowd are massively into absolutely everything he does. And in the ring, I, I think he's fantastic. I'm really enjoying watching his matches. Yeah, me too. I mean, he's uh, he's brilliant, to be honest with you. I'm enjoying this more than his uh, Mark Miro run in the WWF. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a fair shake, mate. I think that's a fair shake. Um, next up, we have a match that literally feels like it could have come out of the WWF in 1989 or 1990. We have Big Bubba, who was formerly the Big Boss Man, facing off against Hacksaw Jim Duggan, and it's a taped fist match because apparently putting tape on your fist means that it hurts more. I don't know. I've never been in a tape fist match, but I don't fully understand, but there we go. This was... Again, it's not, it's not, it's not bad, but it's completely different to the opener because it's two guys who aren't really going to leave their feet, which is fine. Different styles and whatever. It's quite a slow, methodical pace. It feels very early 80s, slow, methodical, brawling style. But the finish was a little bit on the wobbly side for me. Uh, what were your thoughts, mate? What, what did you think about this whole situation here? And I suppose seeing Jim Duggan and the boss man in wrestling each other, sort of maybe six years after they uh, they could have been doing this on the other channel. Yeah. Um, just before I get to my thoughts, there was a great quote by Bobby Heenan here who said, why does everyone have to fight to the floor? What do you think that thing in the middle of the, with, in, with the ropes is for? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now if he had seen wrestling today i think his head would have exploded <laughs> because yeah. the amount of time that people fight on the floor today in 2022 uh, is way more than uh, these two did but overall i actually i enjoyed this match as well i agree with a lot of your points you said um big bub actually looked tired during this match that was the only complaint i had um he didn't look like himself um yeah, I would agree with the finish as well. It was kind of just there, wasn't it? Yeah, it was an odd one. I, again, I suppose it kept in, I suppose in theme, I guess, with regards to what what happened. But Duggan got taped to a rope, and you know, eventually breaks free, and they're brawling away. And whilst this is going on, VK Wall Street, who was IRS in the WWF again around ninety one ish, and so on. So again, another throwback to that company and that era. VK Wall Street comes out and Big Brother hits a distracted Jim Duggan with a hidden weapon. Duggan is then counted out because he's been knocked out, apparently. It's a, it's a chain, I think, isn't it, that the that Bubba has that come from VK Wall Street, potentially. Is that right, Danny? Yeah, it is. And I just wrote down, there was a lot of WWF-style comedy bumps during this as well. Did you notice mm. that? Si? Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. I mean, again... These guys predominantly, when, when you say to me, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, I don't think of Jim Duggan in WCW, even though he's there for a very long time. I don't think of, when if you say to me, uh, Big Boss Man or Ray Trailer, I don't think of the Guardian Angel. I don't think of Big Bubba. I think of the Boss Man in the WWF, in the blue shirt with a nightstick and so on. So 
if they're wrestling a certain style that suits the company they've come from, I can kind of see how that may well be because they would have sort of predominantly had maybe their, their, their more glory days, I suppose, there potentially, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it's like when, when you first see a wrestler in a promotion, that's normally what's stuck in your head unless they make a massive impact like Scott Hall and Kevin Nash. Um, on that subject, if I say Rick Rude to you, what do you think he is, a WCW guy or WWF guy? That's really difficult. That's really difficult. I would probably go... I would probably go WCW guy. Well, I would go WCW. Yeah, see, when you say... It's weird, because when you say Rick Rude, I instantly think my mind straight away goes to the perm, the moustache, and SummerSlam 89 against the Warrior, because that was one of the videotapes I had when I was a kid. However, growing up and watching more wrestling, I saw more of Rude working in WCW, and especially like you know from sort of ninety two to ninety four before he injured his back. And that two year period, Rude was incredible. His stuff in a Dangerous Alliance, his US title runs, uh, his his matches with Sting over what became the WCW World International Title after he had all the issues with different title belts back and forth and so on, right up to ninety four when he when he injured himself and he was wrestling the likes of. Dustin Rhodes and uh, Ricky Steamboat had some great matches with Steamboat and so on. Yeah, that, it, to me, WCW guy above WWE guy. But my first thought of him, my first memory of him, is stood in a WWF ring with the Ultimate Warrior painted on his tights. So I suppose maybe I contradicted myself a touch there. But what about you? You, you say WCW as well? Yeah, I would say uh, WCW uh, in the big oversized suit he used to wear because that's where... I've seen most of uh, Rick Rude when, when he was in the NWO in uh, 98. Uh, okay, yeah. Yeah, fair enough. See, I didn't even think of him in that era. I know, obviously, he was associated with DX as well initially, wasn't he, when DX first formed? And then he was in the NWO, but he wasn't wrestling, obviously, because he's got this insurance payout and he can't wrestle because of his back injury that he picked up in Japan, wrestling Sting uh, and, and so on. So, But I'd never think of Rick Rude in that way. I remember Rude the WCW wrestler and just thought he was fantastic. So that's kind of where my mindset goes, I think, mate. Nah, brilliant. Yeah, okay. I mean, again, Bubba versus Hacksaw was a decent enough contest. Yeah, I, would, I enjoyed it. Yeah, I wouldn't rush back and watch it again, but for what it was, two guys doing a different style to what we'd already seen, there was enough there to keep me entertained, but it wasn't, it wasn't by any stretch of the imagination, a classic, I suppose, bud. No, no, definitely not. It's um, it was like kind of like a mixed variety this night, wasn't it? And I think that was the, the thing to get more people in as well. Well, yeah, obviously that didn't work, but yeah. <laughs> uh, we then get a Ric Flair promo, don't we? Ric Flair is with Mean Gene. Mean Gene's tucked away somewhere on a little kind of platform in in a corner somewhere in the arena. And people keep popping over to visit Gene and, and Gene, you know, he's having a he's having a great old time, mean Gene, speaking to all these different people. He's on the show more than any of the wrestlers this on this pay-per-view, I think. Flair gives the usual kind of spiel, you know, a few woos, a few things like being the best thing going today and, and so on. And then basically says, I'm gonna win the win the battle royal later. And as simplistic and straightforward as it is, you know, it Rick Flair's promo, tick the boxes. You don't need anything else, do you? No, definitely not. I think um, he said it with a lot of conviction. And um, at that point, I did think he was going to win this. Okay. That's the thing as well as that interests me. When we spoke last week on Nitro Nights, I asked you to pick a winner. 
because you don't know you've not seen this before and you don't know who's going to win so when you actually find the time to sit down and watch the pay-per-view had you still not known any winners or did you not have any spoilers or were you still watching this as as new i guess no i didn't look up anything about this i was i was quite shocked but i mean we won't get into the spoiler part of it but yeah i was very surprised by the uh, result of the finish yeah okay something that surprised me watching back funnily enough i mean look at that for a segue hey bloody hell i'm good at this stuff you know <laughs> but yeah so that surprised me was the next match it was a japanese women's tag match which i i'm not gonna lie i don't ever remember happening so when it came on screen i was a bit like oh okay and the ladies are given a, f- a fair few minutes and we have the teams of qt suzuki and mayomi asaki versus bull nakano of xwwf fame and akiro hokodo now women's japanese wrestling is something i know very very little about but i enjoyed this i thought this was okay and what made it brilliant for me is that they bring Mike Tanay onto commentary. And Tanay had a thing about doing anything international with WCW. So when you had like cruiserweight matches with guys from Mexico and so on, or they had Japanese guys involved, Tanay would be a guest commentator. And then he'd disappear again for the rest of the show. And it almost, I mean, his nickname is The Professor, and it does come across that he literally knows bloody everything. So uh, having Tanay on for me is always fantastic because I always, I always find I learned something from him. And also you're, you you know today from, from TNA, don't you? You're a big TNA fan. Uh, how did you find TNA on commentary and, and this match in general, Dan? Very, very fast. Um, I enjoyed it as well. It was another good match. Uh, like you said, um, TNA coming in was brilliant as well. It was a great move by um, WCW. It's a shame uh, WWF never did much like this where they had like a specific man to... Uh, come in and talk about like a something else uh, from a, mm. like a different country and things like that. So all, top marks all around. I think this was the, the best match of the night so far. Uh, what did you think, Sai? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I, I mean, it's, it's a bit clunky at times, if I'm going to be nicky, nitpicky, if I'm going to be a bit, you know, it's a bit clunky. There's a few times where, the girls kind of lose their way for a second or two and they're looking for a prompt from their opponent. But, you know, again, that's me being very nitpicky, I suppose. There was a couple of small timing issues, but apart from that, they start off, uh, as you'd expect, sort of the hair pulling moves and the throwing each other around the ring moves and a few physical slaps from the bigger girls to, to the smaller opponents. But the pacing of the match is very good because they use, as they come to come to the finish, they start cranking up the speed of what they're doing and the bigger moves start coming out towards the end as well. It's not just a spot fest. It seems to make sense what they're doing. You have quite a cool double Boston crab spot. You have um, (laughs) a a moment where one, one of the wrestlers is teasing a tag. She's holding her opponent's hand just, just out of reach of her partner and not letting her tag. I thought that was just, brilliant eight is heel shit that was fantastic that was good storytelling yeah really good really good we have um i mean nakano bull nakano is fantastic i've always loved watching nakano wrestle from when she wrestled uh, medusa or lunge blazer she was known in the wwf and then some of the clips of japanese stuff i get she turns up in wcw once in a while as well some brilliant stuff that she does there's a huge power bomb she does she attempts a moonsault which ultimately misses but it looked bloody brilliant 
And then she's hit with multiple top rope stomps. They seem to take it in turns, jumping down, landing on her stomach. There's a half half Nelson suplex. Uh, a swanton bomb to the outside is used at one stage. And then Nakano busts out her, her guillotine leg drop from the top rope. And that move looked awesome. That top rope leg drop looked like it literally killed her opponent. And a lady that size doing that as well to one of, the, one of her much, much smaller opponents. It looked really impactful. Have you seen much of Bull Meccano, Danny? Or what, what do you think of her? No, I haven't seen mu- too much of her. I think there was a Raw DVD where she was on a few years ago. Um, but yeah, um, I was shocked about another leg drop winning another match here on the same night. So. Oh, yeah. And better leg drops than Hogan's because these were all coming from the top rope and stuff. <laughs> oh, definitely. <laughs> yeah, Triple H wouldn't allow it, would he? Eh? Triple H wouldn't let it happen with the pedigree. <laughs> CM Punk, but there we go. Um, <laughs> we are then greeted with more Mean Gene. He is now with Lex Luger and Jimmy Hart. Luger here, the, the biggest takeaway I've got from this interview is that Lex Luger is incredibly oily. He's gone crazy with the baby oil, hasn't he? He is like, that. no one is going to grab him in a hold because he'll just slip out like a fish. That's a good strategy, to be honest with you. <laughs> It is, yeah. Maybe more wrestlers should do that, you know. But it, obviously, his chest and his stomach are just oiled up to hell. But then his arms and his legs are not, so they look a different color. So he looks like when you'd have those toys when you're a kid, uh, and like the, their arms and legs would break off. So you just pop her arms and legs on, but they wouldn't match color wise. That's what Luger looked like here. He really did. I think the biggest thing I took away from this interview is when he went for a high five and uh, Mean Gene just uh, stood him up and he looked like an idiot. <laughs> yeah, that was brilliant. Gene just left him hanging. <laughs> there was also, the mo- also Jimmy Hart runs his mouth for a bit. Gene's asking the questions. Eventually Luger comes to speak. And I like that. I love Lex Luger. I don't know why. I, know, I understand at this point his best days in ring are behind him. He was never a particularly good promo. He was a bit of a dick sometimes. I've got no idea why I've got this soft spot for Lex Luger. It can't all be because of how good he was in 87, 88. It can't be, but there we go. However, he does himself no favours here because when it's his turn to talk, he spends the entire time cutting his part of the promo looking in the wrong camera. I thought I saw that as well. I mean, don't get me wrong, WCW don't help him out because they could cut to that camera, <laughs> which would help him out, you know, but WCW do none of that. They don't cut to the camera that he's looking at, they just literally leave him looking at the wrong camera. He doesn't twig. Luger doesn't twig at all. And Luger just carries on talking to the wrong camera the whole time. Whilst Gene is looking at the right camera, Luger looks like he's got some 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 real issues going on. Oh, it, that tickled me, mate. That did as well. Yeah, there we go. We get another little surprise, don't we, I guess, because WCW is so informative. You know, we, we, we don't find out anything at all about what's going on anywhere ever. So when the next match uh, begins, which is Chris Benoit versus Kensuke Sasaki, we learn that Sting has lost the WCW United States Championship in Japan just over a week ago to Kensuke Sasaki. And we, this is for the United States Championship. Now, to be fair, Sasaki looks the business walking down to the ring with that belt on, doesn't he? He does, yeah. I mean, that blew me away as well. I had to look it up on my phone because I was thinking... Wow, I don't know. I, they didn't mention this once, but um, yeah, I mean, some nice footage would have been uh, a nice treat to see, wouldn't it? Yeah, I don't know if there was issues with ownership of the footage because it was a New Japan show. 
obviously they were working at the time wcw very much were forming a, a relationship with new japan and i mean that does happen and things take off quite well and you got some great matches because of it but it was a new japan show promoted with wcw so you had quite a few wcw wrestlers on the show uh and obviously saki wins the title i don't know if there would have been an, an issue with copyright or, tr or or the ownership of the footage i can't imagine so because it was a, a show promoted by both companies but at the same time i don't know enough about that world to, to sort of properly pass judgment on whether that would have been the issue but i do 100 percent agree with you danny that it would have been nice to have seen a clip you know <laughs> or even a picture or anything but um yeah he, you're right he did look the business coming down uh, with that us title as well yeah benoit around this time as well i think looks fantastic he's he's not got the old more haggard face that is kind of familiar in his wwf run he's put together he's, he's literally like he's chiseled at this stage his ring gear always looks bright and and, and sharp i mean here he's got four h engraved well not engraved but sort of stitched into the side of his his bright red tights symbolizing he's part of the four horsemen he, he, he looks great benoit here i think i reckon he looks brilliant all topped off with a fantastic mullet oh mate you can't beat a good mullet you can't beat a good mullet i said to the wife the other day for those who are aware, i've got relatively long hair and now i've grown my hair out i'm at a certain age it's starting to go a bit gray and stuff like that i said to her if i ever go bold obviously you go bold on top first don't you I was like, I'm just going to do what Shawn Michaels did and just wear a hat all the time so I can keep my long hair at the back. And my wife said, that is absolutely not going to happen. If I start, if I go bald on top and I won't cut the back, she's going to wait till I fall asleep drunk one night and just hack my hair off. That would make a fantastic video, to be fair. Yeah. You know, I'd, be, I'd be devastated if I just woke up one day and the missus just like took the clippers to the back of my head. You know, like Michael Hayes got on the old plane ride from hell sort of thing. Yeah, that old uh, classic story of uh, the plane ride from hell. Yeah, an eventful evening that was. A, a good time was had by all, it would seem. And that's blatantly not true, but there we go. Um, th this match here, Benoit Sasaki, is is literally kind of what you'd expect. We had a few minutes of it on Nitro a few weeks back, I believe. This is a slightly longer version of the same contest, I saw. I, I believe. It's very hard-hitting, very stiff. Lots of Japanese-style wrestling in it. I mean, Benoit spent a lot of time out in Japan. Obviously, Sasaki is from New Japan. It, it just, it's quite intense. Everything they do is, is tight and looks realistic. We get a tombstone again, you know, for the maybe second match running, or at least the second time in the pay-per-view. Anyway, we get a tombstone spot again, which is interesting. And they're always kicked out on two in WCW as well. But there's a head scissors from the top rope by Chris Benoit, which look great. At one stage, Sasaki... Benoit just tries to kick Suzaki and, and he catches him. He just catches his leg and then powers him up in the air and literally just power slams him down into the mat with such velocity. It looked horrific. And ultimately, Kanzuki Suzaki retains with a kind of a kind of brain buster, but it's to the side rather than dropping straight down. He, he basically spikes his head into the mat, doesn't he, Danny? I mean, how, how would you explain that move because it's, it's a cross between a couple of different moves i think isn't it yeah it's kind of like a tri-brand thing it's like he just kind of like it, and the end result is the worst thing ever because obviously in hindsight chris benwell would uh suffer bad brain damage but um mm. this um yeah uh, interesting finishes i would say as well i did write down a few things like 
Chris Benoit's power driver was highly underrated, uh, in my opinion. Um, he had to stop doing that when he came to the WWF because of the Undertaker. But I think he, even for a smaller man like him, um, it worked really well. Yeah, I agree. I think mean, there's a lot of things that Benoit did that obviously he's not spoken about in certain circles for, for very, very good reason. But uh, you can't escape how talented the guy was in the ring but before the issues kind of took over and the, the horrific you know loss of life happened back in 2007. But you look at simple things. Well, I say simple. I, 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 that's me being incredibly you know arrogant, I guess. It's not simple. Nothing these guys do is simple. But... I suppose, but in comparison to other moves they may use, Benoit throwing a punch, Benoit throwing a chop, Benoit doing the flying headbutt from the top rope, which has been used by numerous wrestlers. It all just looked fantastic. And by comparison to some of his peers doing the same moves, Benoit's always looked better to me. Yeah, definitely. Especially the um, sharpshooter and things like that. He's really good at submissions as well. Mm, yeah. Yeah, what could have been, eh? What could have been? Never mind. Ah, we get another promo with Mean Gene. I hope he was paid well for this evening, Gene. He's definitely earned every penny this tonight, hasn't he, on this pay-per-view. But he's there every with... Every single penny. Yes, every penny. He's there with the Giant, Kevin Sullivan, and Jimmy Hart. And it's, again, a couple of minutes off the usual stuff. We're going to end Hulkamania. We hate Hulk Hogan. The Dungeon of Doom, somebody, we're going to work together and somebody's going to be world champion at the end of the night, but we hate Hulk Hogan. And then the Giant has a little bit of a rant about something I didn't really catch. And, and that was kind of the end of that. Um, how are you feeling about the Dungeon of Doom and all that aspect now that we've had a couple of months worth of television and so, some of the main event matches and so on? What are your thoughts on th that whole that whole stable, I guess? I did note on Twitter uh, a confession that Kevin Sullivan is actually growing on me as a character. Um, but other than that, no, I'm not I'm not digging the Dungeon of Doom. And I'm especially hating that the fact that they're still referring to Andre the Giant as the Giant's father. Yeah. Yeah, well, that was Mean Gene on this occasion, wasn't it? Mean Gene turned around and pointed at the Giant and said, your father would have been really disappointed with what you've become. Which is, uh, that was really weird. That was a really weird thing because obviously Gene knew Andre. And uh, uh, that was really odd to me, really off thing to say. Yeah, I just can't believe they're still doing it. Um, what do you think of uh, Dungeon of Doom, sir? Um, you can see why, you can see why Sullivan was a success in previous generations, I think. Because he's believable. Even with all this nonsense going on, Sullivan comes the closest to selling it to me as 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 being believable, which is ridiculous because we're talking about mummified yetes coming out of blocks of plastic ice and shit. And Sullivan nearly manages it sometimes. So you can see why back in the late 70s, early 80s, when he was doing his kind of satanic group gimmick, people were genuinely scared and, and genuinely like worried about going to an arena where he was. So I can appreciate that. Paul White here, the giant, he's obviously just learning his craft. And, and he's he's in main events and he's associated with some big names, so that's fine. the The rest of the Dungeon of Doom, I'm not massively sold on. To be fair, I mean, Meng doesn't need to be involved in that nonsense. Uh, Luger doesn't need to be involved in that nonsense. That's a really weird fit for me. Luger being in with those that 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 group of you know, well, that freak show. Uh, it's just a lot of silliness, isn't it? A lot of daft silliness brought in because Hogan just wanted to work with his mates. It's kind yeah. of the situation. 
And that's pretty much it. Yeah, and what a note here I've got actually, Danny, that leads you know, le- le- leans in quite well to what you, the question you asked. It feels like two different companies at times. It feels like a company that's definitely changing. It's, you've got the old-fashioned stuff that is like the Dungeon of Doom. And then literally the segment before is Benoit versus Sasaki. And they're doing things that we haven't seen yet on a Nitro, you know, in, in ring. So you've got, to me, it's light and day. It's it's the cartoony, aging style of, of promoting wrestling that the Dungeon of Doom sort of put forward. But then you've got this hard-hitting, incredibly realistic, stiff contest for the United States title literally just before it. And the difference between the two segments that followed, followed each other, sorry, is, is, like I said, it's literally light and day to me, mate. Yeah, peaks and valleys I'm seeing as well. Yeah, yeah, fair point. Um, we get an ad then for Starcade, don't we? Starcade 1995 is coming up. That's the last pay-per-view of the year, Danny. we got a few weeks of television to get through on Nitro Nights before we hit that. Did you notice the little error they made, though, in true WCW fashion? Oh, no, what was it? The graphic on screen said, Starcade 1995, live on pay-per-view, Sunday, December the 27th. Whereas... As Tony Schiavone is promoting the pay-per-view, he says it's on a Wednesday. Now, it was actually on the Wednesday night. It's Starcade for quite a run in its, in its time was in between Christmas and New Year's. So the day it would drop would depend upon when Christmas and New Year's would drop. And on this year, it was on a Wednesday night, December the 25th, 1995 was a Wednesday. But the graphic that they've put on screen says Sunday, December 27th. Isn't that just the most ultimate WCW thing ever? It really is. It's just like, oh, come on. Would someone just have a word with the production team, please? Yeah. I mean, on that note as well, actually, I was going to get to this a bit later on, but it seems more apt to, to bring it up now. When this tape, when this show came out on on video, videotape VHS in, in January, so a few months afterwards, this is obviously WCW World War Three, nineteen 1995. On the box are images of WCW, World War Three, 1995. Characters in their 1995 WCW gear and gimmicks appearing on the box. And the box reads WCW, World War Three, 1996. Oh. On all the VHS releases, Danny, it went out like that. Oh my God, that is just terrible. <laughs> Isn't it ridiculous? Absolutely. And oh, just... It just blows my mind. It blows my mind, but there we go. The the one that always gets me is um, there was a videotape they released with, um, I think it was Fall Brawl 1998, and it had um, Goldberg and Sting um, in the ring together, and they weren't even on the card. No, that's right. That's right, yeah. Stuff like that used to happen all the time. You know, I remember there was, I, can't remember, oh, I don't know what event it was, I don't know what event it was, but I got the VHS tape and one of the images on the back of the VHS tape when I rented it from my local video store was of a certain wrestler holding the title belt at the end of his match. So if you looked on the back to see what the card was, because I thought they used to do all the old VHS tapes, didn't they? They used to list the card. If you looked on the back to see what the card was, you would genuinely, right in front of you, get the image of a spoiler for one of the main events. I mean, oh, that is something WWE did a lot of uh, in their DVD days. It's, it's not hard, is it? Just just put a bit of thought into what you're doing, you know? Oh, Definitely. Dear, we are... Uh, this is something else I want to t- uh, touch upon, actually, with you, Danny. 
normally when we go into a pay-per-view we've only done this is only like, like our third isn't it but when we go into a pay-per-view i'll try and ask you to name the card when we cover the go home show and you haven't been able to do it yet have you and nor have i to be fair because they don't tell us what's going on now you look at this card the next two matches well i said beforehand you've got a tv title match and it's it's the it's part of a feud that's been running for many weeks You've then got a match with a stipulation to it, the, the taped hand match, not promoted at all. You've then got these women flying over from Japan, not promoted at all. But these next two matches, especially for WCW, why was it not just screamed from the rooftops that these next two matches would be happening? I wasn't aware that either of these matches were going to happen until I watched the pay-per-view itself. First up, we have Lex Luger versus Randy Savage. This has been building for months. And nowhere to be seen on television. I mean, on a pay-per-view build-up. Absolutely shocker. It's, it's, I can't get my head around it, mate. I'm just uh, lost for words. <laughs> it's ridiculous. I mean, surely it would sell tickets, in theory. You know, Randy Savage is, is, is a big deal. He's only just, you know, this year come into WCW. Lex Luger has come from the WWF with a lot of heat, a lot of, you know, a lot of momentum. And also, it's Lex Luger, a name that is synonymous with nwa jim crockett promotions wcw or that sort of area of the country and then flair versus sting that's up next that is to me the wcw match and if you're putting flair versus sting on surely you want to just mention it at least once oh look if you buy the pay-per-view at the weekend you're going to get this 60-man battle royal for the world championship oh and also you're going to get to see Ric Flair versus Sting. That, You'd think. That'd be, that'd be me as a kid going, Dad, can I have the money to put this paper, please? You'd really think, isn't it? I mean, just, I mean, the fact that they've just promoted just one match is like, okay, you're going to get to see 60 wrestlers. But um, forget the rest of the card as well. I was thinking as you was talking there, maybe it was a, a way to um, stop the dirt she's leaking like spoilers or something like that, or predictions to hurt the... Um... But then again, it's all live, isn't it? So, no, it's, I don't see why. Like you said, I, I just don't see the strategy here. No, it makes no sense. I mean, I, I, you know, sort of developing that point a little bit further, Danny, with regards to the dirt sheets, they would have a rough idea. They would be printing a rough idea of what the card is going to be in the build-up so they would be saying okay this is what we expect it to be and then of course you get the old average card subject to change all the time and so on but they would be saying look we expect Lugo to work with savage you know or even they, they may even get it confirmed from their their sources or inside men or whatever so i can understand that but not every it's a very small percentage not everyone not everyone in the wrestling world would be reading these dirt sheets it's a very small percentage of people and and they've sold eight thousand tickets there's 12,000 in there, granted, but they've sold just over 8,000 tickets. And they've got 110,000 pay-per-view buyers on the basis of the main event, the 60-man Battle Royal. Because that is quite a hook. It's a match that no one's ever seen before. And it's for the vacant World Championship. So you can understand why that why that would have an appeal. However, could that 8,000 tickets sold maybe have been nine or 10,000 if they'd said, oh yeah, we've got Luger Savage and Flair Sting on the card as well? Could that 110,000 pay-per-view buyers... It could that you could have maybe some as, as minuscule as an extra ten thousand, but it's all going in the right direction. Why I don't get why they just don't advertise what's coming up on the show. It baffles me. I'm completely in agreement with you. I mean, just 
they could have definitely pushed a few more if you knew Sting versus Ric Flair was happening at least. But um, yeah, I just can't believe that it didn't happen. Yeah, insane. But we'll see insane. if they change by um, Starcade time. Yeah, yeah, fair, fair shake. We'll have to keep a real eye on that in the upcoming weeks on Nitro Nights. And then obviously don't go peek in and get any spoilers, Danny. But when we do the go home Nitro before the pay-per-view, as always, I'll ask you to run through the card and we'll see what you know just from watching the television. That'd be really interesting to see how things change over the next month, weeks, months, years, etc. So yeah, great shape. Definitely sounds great. Here we get a promo video showing the history between Luger and Savage. And it does effectively go all the way back to the very first episode of Nitro that we watched together. So it's quite a long running, slow build to this point, which again, baffles me why if they're going to have some, some form of a blow off on the pay-per-view, it's not advertised, but there we go. The match is effectively all Randy Savage, isn't it? <laughs> he, he kind of dominates early on, doesn't really slow down until the end, Danny, does he? No, he doesn't. Um, like you said, he was definitely a, a one-sided match. Um, I found that Lex Luger, um, it's not like, he, like you said earlier, his best days were behind him, but he was just kind of just phoning it in here. Um, I don't know mm. if you noticed that, Si, in his, um, in his selling evening. Yeah, I mean, we speak about him a great deal, but for me, Luger's a funny one. Phoning it in, I think, is a really difficult term to use because you don't know, or, or the watcher, the viewer, doesn't know what's going on. Has he got an injury? Is he unwell? Has he even got family problems at home? Whatever it may well be. So phoning it in is a real difficult thing to, I think, label a wrestler with. Because, I mean, even if a guy is not putting on the greatest performance ever, it's still a million times better than I could ever do. True, but, me. <laughs> <laughs> but when you say here, phoning it in for this specific Luger performance, I think you're absolutely on the money. It does come across a little bit like he's going through the motions. And that is something that can be levelled at Lex, I think, a great deal through his WCW run here when he returned on the first Nitro and he's still, he's still with the company pretty much at the end as well. He, he continues to go stay with them. He's always there and he always has this kind of, I suppose he has this kind of star quality to him, maybe because of the longevity of the name Lex Luger and, and the titles he's won in the past and, and the way he looks. I mean, he's a, he's a massive muscle band guy. He's always involved in big moments. I mean, I'm not going to list specifics now because we've got plenty to look forward to but he's always involved in many many great moments going through 96 97 98 99 and so on but i think it really it really takes a lot to light a fire under him at this stage and again i'm a luger fan so all this isn't this isn't me just digging him out but it, it does come across like it takes a, 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 a you know you've got to light a fire under the guy to get him motivated here and there are moments coming up in the future, Danny, where we will see Luger motivated and working. And, you know, he's got his working boots on for certain guys and he looks good and so on. But when you go back to when Luger joined the Horsemen and he was working with the Horsemen back in the late 80s and then they kicked him out and then they replaced him with Barry Windham and you had the feud there with Windham and, and he wrestled Flair as well. And all. That, that Lex Luger was, was really good. That lets you could move, he could work, and he, he he came across hungry. He like he really wanted to be doing what he was doing. So it was a real shame that you know someone such as yourself, who's not seen masses of Luger in WCW, is now turning around and saying it looks like he's phoning it in. And I've got no option but to agree with you. It's it's a it's a shame for me, you know. 
yeah, I completely understand. But um, I just hope he's not uh, doing this much longer. Like you said, we've got plenty to look forward to. Um, I'm a Lex Luger fan as well. Um, uh, but probably, I, I think more from his um, WWF run. Ah, yeah. Okay, the Lex Express and all that sort of stuff. SummerSlam 93 and, and all that, yeah. Definitely. And, and uh, his uh, independent run in the early 2000s that he had. Okay, yeah. He turned up in TNA as well, didn't he? He had a, a cracking match with AJ Styles um, that um, I think you should check out. Have you seen it, actually? I don't think I have. And again, AJ's a, a big favourite of mine. So if you, if you can track that down and send me a link, mate, I'd really appreciate that. That sounds great. Yeah. Uh, what we have here, though, as I said, is Savage kind of controls the majority of the match and then eventually hits his top rope elbow. So you're thinking the match is over. But Jimmy Hart has distracted the referee. And that's enough for Luger to, I suppose, take control of himself on the outside. He puts Savage in the rack on the outside of the ring for a long time, throws him back into the ring, puts him in an arm bar on the injured arm, which is you know massively taped up for this contest. And Savage basically passes out from that. But then we have a little throwback to what went on with Sting and the Scorpion Deathlock and Luger a week or two ago on Nitro. Do you want to just talk us through what we see next, Danny? Yeah, we see Sting running down and uh, kind of just talking to uh, Lex Luger um, to get him to stop. But it was kind of like, like at that point, I thought Lex Luger was the full heel in the uh, Dungeon of Doom. Mm. So it's amazing he didn't have to get physical or get physical too much. So, yeah, I found that a bit odd. I reckon it's a really interesting dynamic because you've got Lex who, like you said, he's he's the bad guy. He's in the Dungeon of Doom. You've got Sting, who's very much not that way, but they are still friends, it seems. Luger hasn't done anything directly to Sting, and, and Sting is you know talking Luger down from hurting Randy Savage here and so on. And we get the announcement that Sting and Luger are going to tag together on Nitro this week coming week. It's a really interesting dynamic for me, one that would have me tuning in again to see what's going to happen between Sting and Luger, these, these friends who are whose friendship kind of bridges across a divide, so to speak. But can you trust Luger or can Luger even trust Sting? I suppose it's a really unique way of doing things. I think, Danny. Yeah. I mean, speaking of unique, I mean, them promoting tomorrow's Nitro on a pay-per-view is completely backwards, isn't it? It's supposed to be the pay-per-view being promoted on Nitro. (laughs) Well, yeah, I suppose you're right. I suppose you're right. But at the same time, I literally heard an interview with Eric Bischoff this week where Bischoff was talking about when he first took over in WCW and then running through the mid-90s. And he was saying, people need to remember when we gave away Hogan's Sting on free television. People need to remember when we gave away other big matches that we've not come to yet on free television. WCW wasn't like the WWF in structure. The WWF was a company that was there, was a business, and it was there to make money. And the pay-per-view buy rates were what made them a lot of money. So it was the TV would promote and build up and build up and build up. Big pay-per-view. And then it would start again. That's how the cycle would run. WCW was a television company first, Bischoff explained. And because it's owned by Ted Turner and, and all his branches and companies and TV companies and so on, because it's owned that way, WCW's TV product getting ratings to be able to sell advertising 
was hugely important to how they how they structured their business from year to year. So I suppose in that aspect, it is a little different to what we would normally be used to. But saying that, you're right with lots of other things. For example, why didn't they promote certain matches on the pay-per-view? You can still make money via the pay-per-view. <laughs> you know? It, again, it's, it's 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 back and forth, swings and roundabouts, mate, isn't it? It really is, yeah. Thank you for explaining that. So that um, is completely different to the WWE... Yeah, I mean that's the way that's the way Bischoff explained it himself, and I, I get where he's coming from, and and the way they were structured as well is that they didn't always get the the advertising money wasn't always going straight to WCW, whereas it, it, big advertising campaigns or big advertising deals with WWF would go straight back into the WWF because WCW was part of uh, you know Ted Turner's group. Any advertising revenue that WCW created which by 97 and 98 was huge they were they were raking it in it wouldn't go to wcw it would go to the turner advertising i suppose department and get divided up and so on so they wouldn't always see all of the money and either so it's it a real unique different way of doing it because effectively this guy who owned tv companies this media like giant bought a wrestling company as opposed to Vince McMahon, who was a promoter, buying a wrestling company and then going out, to, having to go out and get television. So it was a bit, a bit more, you know, a, a bit more backwards potentially, I guess. But we'll we'll cover more of that as we go through the years because lots of things pop up that kind of. Uh, it's interesting hearing the explanation from people behind the scenes as to why they did things that wrestling fans look back at now and go, "Well, that was ridiculous. Why'd they do that?" And then you hear the explanation from people behind the scenes. And it kind of makes a bit more sense. I don't always agree, but it does make sense sometimes, if if you know what I mean. Yeah, totally. One thing that always makes sense, though, Bert, one thing that always makes sense to me, Ric Flair versus Sting, that's our next contest. This is, to me, this is just WCW all over. Talk, talk us through this match, Bert. What did you think? Absolute belter. Um, I really enjoyed this. Uh, there was It was the classic Sting versus Ric Flair match, but yeah. this was given a lot of time. And um, to me, even after, it felt more important during it than the actual main event. But um, yeah, I actually really enjoyed this match. What did you think, sir? Yeah, I did too. I mean, I enjoyed Flair Sting no matter what. Even even in their older days, I enjoy Flair Stings. It makes me feel nostalgic about watching Flair Sting in the past, you know? So even if they're a bit older and can't do what they used to do, I still get a kick out of it. It's just... Like I said, it's just WCW. It's just the NWA. It's, it's this is it, isn't it? This is what is, you know, the longest running feud stroke storyline throughout the history of the company. I guess Flair runs to a different ring quite often as well. Because we got the three ring set up. I quite enjoyed that. Uh, Tries to get Sting to follow him in. The crowd are wild for this. Absolutely wild. Parker, Colonel Parker, and Sa- Sensational Sherry turn up. I don't quite know what that was all about. No, I was the same, um, but I, I thought, let me just enjoy this Sting versus Ric Flair match. Let me try and block them out as much as I can. But yeah, them turning up kind of didn't fit in, did it? No, I mean, what did they do? It was it was definitely odd. I, I, I think they just sat down, didn't they? Is that all they did? They just turned up and watched the match? From what I remember, yeah. It was, they just kind of just sat down and just probably just was sick and tired of watching it backstage and went, let's just watch it in the, in the arena. 
I suppose from that aspect, I can I can get on board with that because if I had the chance of sitting down and watching Flair versus Sting, I, I, I'd go and I'd go and pull up a few, you know. So maybe we're doing you know Colonel Parker and Sherry an injustice there, Dan. Maybe who knows? <laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> but if anything, we'll see. Maybe it's part of a long term storyline. Yeah, maybe we're just seeing the, the start of something that develops into something else. I mean, I'm gonna. I'm going to wager knowing how WCW works. Nothing's ever going to come of this, but, but we'll see how it goes. <laughs> oh, Sting no selling Ric Flair's chops and then Ric Flair's reaction to Sting no selling them never gets old for me. That is just wrestling gold all over there, mate. Yeah, it really is. I mean, as you were saying, even in their older days, in 2011, they still had a decent match that pulled a huge rating for TNA. Mm. And um, there was a rumour that they were going to have a face-off in uh, AEW in 2021. But before the Dark Side of the Ring uh, thing killed Ric Flair's career. <laughs> um, so mm. any time I'm down to watch these two. See, I keep I keep joking with the wife whenever you see a video of Ric Flair. So I keep saying to her, oh, one more match. Because obviously Flair's, Flair's one of the guys for me. Flair and Michaels are the two that, you know. But my wife's like, I don't want to ever see that, ever. <laughs> but you see videos of him online. One was posted today via Flair's Instagram. And he's working out in the gym. And he's a beast. He's an absolute monster. And then there's another video that was posted a few days back. And he's in the wrestling ring. And he's taking bumps as in like back body drops and, and, and all this sort of stuff. And he looks, don't get me wrong, Flair's in his 70s. He's a bit slower. He's a bit, shall we say, wobblier. You know, he, he doesn't look as he did in his 86 prime. Of course not, nobody would. But he's still bumping around and, and all that. And I'm thinking, go on, you could do it, Rick, can you? Just one more match. You could. Do all I want to see is a couple of chops, a woo, and, and a figure four. That'd do me, you know? Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, that he's. I saw those clips. Um, he still definitely has the punches. Yeah, Flair's punches are absolutely fantastic. I don't know if I've told the story on the show before, but in in his book, he explains how his punches are so good. Do you know this? No. What what happens? It, apparently, he would he would hang a piece of string or a piece of wool or something like that from the door frame in his hotel. And part of Flair's ritual was always he would do 500 squats every day. But then he would, especially when he was learning the business, he would throw a punch as hard as he could at this piece of string. Well, so, he, so basically he would throw a punch as hard as he could at this piece of string to touch the piece of string. But if the string moved, then it wasn't right. Wow. So that's that apparently that's how Flair basically I don't know if I'll have to go back and read the book to get it. I may be paraphrasing a bit or getting a little bit that wrong. If I am, I apologize. But I'll have to go back and read that section of the book again. I don't know if it's no, something that... he learnt from somebody else or if it's something he just developed himself. So then his punches look like they're going to break someone's jaw, but they're literally just stopping and touching the opponent, as in not moving the bit of string. So that is really cool. I didn't know that at all. Yeah, that's what I read anyway. Unless I've dreamt that, and that's not true at all. But <laughs> no, I'm fairly certain it was in his book. I'll have to look it up for, for a future episode, mate. We get a moment here where the Bobby Heenan, just absolutely fantastic. Sting's choking Ric Flair. He's literally got his hand around Flair's throat. Uh, and Flair just wallops Sting with a low blow. His arm just shoots out and, and, and cracks Sting right in the knackers. And Bobby Heenan's reaction was, whoa, that was a nerve reaction there, where where, where Flair is pressing on, Heen on, on Sting's nerves is making the muscles contract and his arms shot out that was just so good by bobby heenan 
oh, I've always got time to hear Bobby Heenan. I mean, his commentary never gets old. Yeah, he's absolutely superb, isn't he? He's, he's just a highlight, even on this show. And there's there's a lot of good on this show, let's be honest. But even on this show, he is a highlight. He is just an absolute joy whenever he's whenever he's beyond the microphone. Definitely. I mean, um, there was a, I think, a form on Reddit that said, um, imagine if he stayed with the WWF and him during the Attitude Era. With Jim Ross. Yeah, yeah. Oh, what a combination that would have been. I I like it, but at the same time, I can't see him, I don't know, I can't see him, like, reacting to, like, the Brian Panny's matches or, like, the Mud Show matches, you know, the Mud um, matches that they had. And things like that. Um, I don't know, but he would have been a good, an interesting character. Yeah, without a doubt, without a doubt. I mean, the match ends as many Sting Flair matches end, I guess, uh, with a Scorpion, uh, Scorpion dead, Deathlock from Sting to get the submission. But yeah, I, I, I enjoyed this. This was this was a, again. A, it's two guys who know what they're doing, putting on a good match, I suppose. Yeah, it really is. It's like, they're never going to let you down. This is why, even though this should have been advertised, I can see why it was just chucked on the card because they probably thought, oh, nothing's really going to top this. But um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So then, we then come to the main event, the World War Three match. Three rings, 60 men, one world title is the uh, tagline we are given. We've got three commentary teams. We have uh, Eric Bischoff and Dusty Rhodes covering ring number two. We have Chris Cruz, who I've never heard of, with Larry Zabisco covering ring number three. And Tony Schiavone and Bobby Heenan, as our main commentators, are covering ring number one, as they have been for the rest of the evening. Just we, quickly, sorry to interrupt. Uh, no, just carry quickly, on, carry on. Chris Cruz was the man that um, got AEW in trouble for um, the Kenny Omega John Moxley match uh, a couple years ago, and caused a lot of mess um, uh, during that because uh, by complaining to the commission or something about blood. That's oh. how I remember him. I don't know if you remember that story that was flown around a couple of years ago. I remember there being complaints. I didn't. Re- well, also, I don't know who Chris Cruz is. So I remember there being complaints. I, I would have never made that link, though. That you know, this guy from a WCW event, you know, pushing thirty years ago was was a cause of the issues. Oh, fantastic! Oh, yeah. yeah um, a lot of people were shocked that he came out of the woodwork just for that. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, very quickly, I'll, I'll, I'll summarize what we're greeted with. We've got the three rings, as we explained earlier. We've got. 60 men all walking out, you know, no individual entrances here. They're walking out in single file and getting um, announced as they come out, each one separately. Um, we've got the three commentary teams. And then when the match starts, we've got a split screen. So the screen is split into three with a quite gaudy, bright background. So you can watch all three matches at once. Now that's quite an eyeful i suppose um that's kind of what we're greeted with before we get into the details of what went on uh what are your thoughts danny on that setup i just explained i wasn't a fan to be honest i found it was too okay. much to um to concentrate on and things like that it was like um where, which one do i focus on which one is thrown out though it was a bit too much for me what did you think sir I 100% agree. I 100% agree. It was, 
on one aspect, it was great because you didn't take your eyes off the screen because there was always something going on. But on the other side of the coin, it was so busy and such a mess that you never really knew where to look. And sometimes you would have camera angles capturing virtually the same thing, but from a different angle. So you'd be missing something else. And you also had camera cuts where guys were being eliminated and you were watching them in the build up to the elimination. And then the camera would cut to another screen or would cut to another angle and you'd miss the actual elimination and you just get told about it by the commentary. The, the three ring commentators, sorry, the three commentary teams. I find that very interesting because I, I liked that idea, that dynamic of having three separate commentary teams, one per ring. That made it feel very big and very special and, and different. However, it also backs up the point of it being quite busy because if WCW need three separate commentary teams to call the action, how are we as viewers supposed to watch the action when it's on three separate rings? Does that make sense? That really does. And I was just thinking, where the hell was Mongo? Oh, yeah. I, th- I think they could have thrown uh, Chris Cruz out and put Mongo McMichael with um, Larry Z-, Z. Oh, my God. I didn't even notice he wasn't there. Yeah, where was Mongo? He should have been there, really. Yeah, totally. Oh, why? Okay. We didn't get Pepe but- the dog either. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, th- I kind of thought he was going to be one of the uh, entrants, but he didn't show up here either. But there was that one other point I just wanted to make just before we get into this. Um the ring announcer david penzer hats off to him because even though michael buffer was there he and david penzer announced all 60 competitors in very quick fashion and that would have been hard yes well it's funny you mentioned that in i suppose that in the need for people knowing the level of competitor and and the level of talent on the roster I've got the list of 60 in front of me and I was contemplating just quickly reading through them. So everyone knows exactly who's involved in this match before we get down to the final points, I suppose. So, so yeah. So shall I, shall I run through the 60 Danny? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Bear with me. We have the 60 competitors in the world war three match. We have Scott Armstrong, Steve Armstrong, Arn Anderson, Johnny B. Bad, Marcus Bagwell, Chris Benoit, Big Train Bart, whoever the hell that is. Bunkhouse Buck, Cobra, Disco Inferno, Jim Duggan, Bobby Eaton, Ric Flair, The Giant, Eddie Guerrero, Hulk Hogan, Mr. JL, Chris Canyon, Brian Nobbs, Kurosawa, Lex Luger, Joey Mags, Meng, Hugh Morris, who kept getting called Humorous all the way through the event by Bobby Heenan, Max Muscle, Scott Norton, The One Man Gang, Paul Orndorff, Diamond Dallas Page, Sergeant Buddy Lee Parker, Brian Pillman, Sergeant Craig Pittman, Lord Stephen Regal, Scotty Riggs, Road Warrior Hawk, Big Bubba Rogers, Jerry Sags, Ricky Santana, Kenzuki Sasaki, The Shark, Fidel Sierra, don't know who the hell that is, Dick Slater, Mark Starr, Stevie Ray, Sting, Dave Sullivan, The Taskmaster, Super Assassin Number 1, Super Assassin Number 2, Booker T, Squire David Taylor, who was announced on a regular basis as being the heavyweight champion of Britain, Newsflash, everyone out there, he was not. Bobby Walker, VK Wall Street, Pez Watley, Mike Winner, Alex Wright, James Earl Wright, the Yeti, and the Zodiac. There we go. That was the 60 that were in the match. The Yeti, incidentally, coming out without his mummified costume and dressed like some kind of 
crazy cartoon ninja gear. He looked like he looked like he'd be like a final boss on Streets of Rage in the nineties or something like that. Yeah. You know, Mortal Kombat. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, that, but I don't know if that's what Yetis wear. I, I don't know. Perhaps that's, that that took know. me completely out of it. It was like, wow, well, I expected the Yeti to be there, but I didn't think he would be under a new gimmick. No, it's very strange. It's very strange. It's like when the Shockmaster debuted in a helmet and then came out as something completely different after, isn't it? Yeah, but to be fair, he fell on his arse, didn't he? And made himself look daft. They couldn't have carried on trying to run with the same gimmick after he did that, I guess. But <laughs> Fair enough. There we go. There we go. Yeah, so um, we have quite the mess here. The split screen has a lot going on, and, and it lasts a long time as well. It's about 45 minutes from when the bell rings to the end of the pay-per-view. Lex Luger, I think, has got a good idea. He just slips out the ring, stands on the outside. That's everyone else. Scrap. Oh, fair play, Lex. I mean, okay, we're, we're obviously talking earlier about how Luger has been phoning it in. This is taking it to a whole new extreme. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> uh, we find also that it's not just three rings, 60 men, and off we go. When a ring gets down to only having 10 guys left, that 10 get notified by a referee, and they have to move into the next ring. So ultimately, we whittle down to one ring at the end. So that, I suppose, is another little twist on the ordinary battle royal kind of gimmick but it, it does make it again a bit of a mess because when you're watching a ring and you get a lot of people out of the ring and you can start to see what's going on all of a sudden they bunch them back up again and we're back to being in a mess and you can't see what's going on again no you can't just, can you no no you can't it's, it's it is quite frustrating until the later stages but i suppose a lot of battle royals are that way but this is just so many people so much going on and you're bombarded as well, aren't you? You've got the bright colour behind the screens. You've got the three separate screens on your on your screen at home at the same time, all doing different stuff. Different voices being thrown at you every 30 seconds. It, it is quite jarring. Uh, Scott Norton gets eliminated, and Chris Cruz is like crazy excited about this. I don't know. I don't know if like Chris Cruz was a huge Scott Norton mark or whether he was a good mate with him, or, or I don't know. But Norton going out gets Chris Cruz incredibly excited, doesn't it? Oh, it really does. Yeah, he goes full on there. Goes mental. Um, stretcher comes by for somebody, but I'm not 100% sure at this stage who for, because it is just chaos, absolute chaos. We eventually get down to one ring, but there's 30 blokes in this one ring. So there's more people in the one ring when we've whittled the competition down so there was in any of the rings at the start. So it looks even worse than it did at the beginning which was, again, a mess. It turns out Scott Armstrong is the guy who the stretcher is for. Now, I'm assuming he he has a legit injury here because they didn't look like people pretending to be medical staff. They looked like medical staff. And that stretcher was round the side of the ring, him getting treatment for a long time. And it just was not mentioned on camera. So I'm assuming Scott Armstrong here picked up a pretty serious injury when he was eliminated, Danny. Yeah, definitely. It did seem that way. I don't see why they would bring in a fake ambulance for um, something this chaotic as well, because there was enough bodies around the ring and in the ring uh, for that. So it had to be legit. Yeah. Speaking of enough bodies, the referees were in the ring. Why? There's enough people in there. Why do we need the referee in the ring as well? Why can't maybe on the outside of the ring like normal? 
Yeah, I found that very odd as well. It was like, like you could see everything that was going on outside the ring. Why be in the ring at the same time? Yeah, just ridiculous. It would be just like um, referees being in the Royal Rumble nowadays, wouldn't it? It just wouldn't make sense. No, you're right. Yeah, you're right. Did you see the moment where Booker T basically eliminated himself? Oh, yes, yes. And uh, the Yeti went out quite early, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. The Yeti went out quite early. Uh, Hogan was eliminated by... Um, sorry. The Yeti went out quite early. Uh, Booker T eliminated himself. He sort of swung his legs back into the ring under the bottom rope, realised, oh, Struth, I'm actually supposed to go out here, and then swung his legs back out and threw himself on the floor, which was quite comical. <laughs> It just so happened that, you know, we didn't see certain people being eliminated. We didn't see certain moves happening. But fair play, WCW production crew. You caught that, didn't you? You know, <laughs> you had the camera one, on that. One for the Butcher Mania uh, fans. <laughs> yeah, I reckon. I reckon. Hogan eliminates Kevin Sullivan, which gets quite a reaction. And then we get people busting out submission moves in the middle of a battle royal. We get a figure four. We get... I think there's an arm bar in there. We get a scorpion as well. In the middle of a battle royal, where everyone else is literally walking around them and fighting. That was a bit odd for me. Yeah, I would say it's the same thing as well. There's a big pop for when Ric Flair and Arn Anderson eventually get eliminated. The crowd enjoyed that, didn't they? They did, really, as well. You'd think, um, I mean, Arn Anderson, in, this is the first time we've seen Arn Anderson tonight as well. I thought they would have booked him in a match prior to this. Well, I guess. I guess, mate. But then, you know, it wouldn't have made no difference. Nobody would have told us it was happening. So, <laughs> The finish of the match is quite a mess as well. We have Hogan dumping out Sting and the Giant. But as this happens, Hogan slips and goes through the ropes as opposed to over the ropes. One man gang on the other side of the ring is eliminated, to which basically means the bells rung and Randy Savage, bad arm and all, is declared the world champion. But Hulk Hogan is in a little bit of a tizzy about this, isn't he? He's a little bit miffed about this whole scenario because he's saying he went through the middle rope. He went under the ropes as opposed to over the top. This seemed to be uh, recreating the 1992 finish of the Royal Rumble, didn't it? With, with regards to Hogan's reaction, yeah. I, I didn't I didn't make that link until you just said, actually. So that's a really good point. With regards to Hogan's reaction, I get that because Hogan... It's cross, Hogan. I don't know why he's cross at Savage. It's not Savage's fault. But he's really pissed off at Randy Savage, you know, and he's chops in and running his mouth and demanding they show some footage and so on. Now, bear in mind, literally two and a half hours ago, Hogan stripped off the black gear to reveal the red and yellow to say, I'm a baby face again. I'm back from the dark side. I'm good guy, Hulk Hogan. Say your prayers, eat your vitamins and so on. And here he is screaming and yelling at referees and again, acting the heel. It's like, just make your mind up, mate. You know, but I don't get why he was so angry at Savage. Why was he? Why, why is it Randy Savage's fault? <laughs> I have no idea, but I do know that Hulk Hogan isn't as genuine as uh, he's saying here. No, uh, the big thing that I took away from it was that this is um, Randy Savage's first WCW world title win. He's not been in the company masses of time. This is his first title win. This is his ascension to the top of the show, so to speak. Lots of fans wanted to see this happen. He was a massive star in 95, and it made sense when this did occur. But Hogan here, and I'm not, I will say Hogan, but I'm not saying it is necessarily just Hogan. It's the writing team, etc., and all the other people who, who decide what is going to happen. 
Hogan's actions completely undermine Savage's title win. Completely. Yeah. He's, it, you, you, you never hear Savage's music. He's not allowed to celebrate with the belt. He's not allowed to, you know, thank the fans or anything like that. You've got Mean Gene going, well, what's going on? You've got Hogan acting like a spoiled little child, stamping his foot and crying. You've got Savage looking around going, I don't know what the situation is. It's just an absolute mess. Now, Hogan then starts really undermining Savage. He starts mocking Savage. I mean, Savage has earlier in the night had a, 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 an interview where he said, you know, it is what it is, what it is. You know, whatever, basically meaning whatever happens, happens. It is what it is. I'm trying to be a positive person in my life and so on. Hogan mocks Savage by putting on a fake Savage voice and going, oh, what it is, it is, it is what it is, and all this sort of stuff. Really mocking the guy on the cam on the microphone. And it just, the whole thing just really undermines Savage's moment for me. Yeah, I would fully agree with that. I mean, now you put it like that, it was kind of like, I can't believe he went along with this, knowing the person Randy Savage was. Um, I'm shocked that did Hulk Hogan have this much power to just, like like you said, it was his first world championship. I mean, he'd been told by Vince that he was too old to wrestle. Here he is in a new company and he's at the top of the mountain only for Hulk Hogan to shit all over him. Exactly. I, I, I appreciate, I suppose, they're trying to do what we discussed earlier, Danny, with regards to you must tune into Nitro tomorrow night to see what happens. Because that's that's what I think that's kind of what they're aiming for, because they're talking about Nitro tomorrow night, we're going to see the footage. Nitro tomorrow night, Randy, I'm going to confront you, Hogan says. Uh, and you know, words to that effect anyway. So I can appreciate they're trying to make people who are watching the pay-per-view or live in attendance we must watch Nitro tomorrow night. That's, 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 we cannot miss that show. So I get where they're coming from with that. However, could they not have done it? I mean, it's, Hogan has eliminated the Giant and Sting, fallen out to the back. Could they not have just had him brawling with the Giant at the, at the aisle way, disappears out the back, Savage is declared champion, he has his moment, and then the following night, Hogan comes out and says, look at the footage. I wasn't eliminated. And they can, you still get the same effect, but you get the, the balloons from the ceiling, the ticker tape, the, the music, Savage gets to celebrate his, you know, without instantly taking away, literally the, the second the bell has rang, it's all about Hogan again. You know, now, and I'm, again, I'm not just pointing the finger at Hogan. Other people work in this. Other people write to this. Other people sign this off as well. But I just really felt... I mean, Savage probably signed off on it himself as well. Don't get me wrong. But I, I just think, man, that could have been done better. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I mean, I like that point about taking Hulk Hogan out of the picture so that Savage can have his moment, but unfortunately it just wasn't to be. Yeah, and then the following night, Hogan come out and go, look, I know you're my friend, but you didn't go over the top rope. I didn't go over the top rope. There's something to clear up here. And instantly you've got a tailor-made storyline going forward for the next few weeks, even potentially into Starcade. You know, you've got that 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 sort of that booking there. You know, so simple, so straightforward. And Hogan Savage, two friends who genuinely believe they should be world champion, um, who have fought side by side in the recent months, but now have this conflict because of a, a bad refereeing decision. No one's fault other than the officials. To me, that's intriguing. To me, that would be, you could build that, even like I said, even going into Starcade as the main event for the championship. Yeah. I mean, that that would have been a better choice, in my opinion, but yeah. just I just don't know why they didn't do it. 
No, nor me. Nor... I suppose we will find out more when we watch the following episode of Nitro, my friend. Ah, that concludes the pay-per-view, I guess. They go off the air. That's that. I suppose we better chuck out some ratings ourselves, Danny. This, well, plus point, bad point, good thing, negative thing. Our woos and arrow brothers. Brother, 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 brothers, brother. Woo! Brother. Do you want to go first or second, my friend? Um, I'll go first this week, Sam. You crack on. So definitely the woo of the night would be the Chris Benoit Suzaki match. Um, because I enjoyed that the most, even though it was very, very physical. Um, yeah, I would, I would say that was uh, the woo off. What was your woo? Mine was very, very similar, and it was going to be the Benoit US title match. But then I thought, oh, hang on a second, the ladies match. Okay, a bit clunky, a bit scruffy around the edges, but I enjoyed moments in that. Oh, hang on a second, the opener was good as well. Okay, Bossman versus Haxall wasn't great, but for what it was it wasn't offensive oh but sting versus flair was good so my woo is literally the whole undercard my woo is that we, we didn't have a clue what was on this show barring the main event but what i watched this afternoon on the whole i did enjoy so my woo is literally the whole undercard what about your your old brother my friend what about your bad point well it, it was a really hard choice to choose but it either had to be the finish well the aftermath of the um about battle royal or i don't think we covered this but at one point there was a um, moment where me and gene was on the stage saying that somebody from the wwf had been uh, suspended for failing a drug test and i think that either that or the finish of the, uh, the aftermath of the battle royal what was your side yeah mine, mine was the finish mate mine was the finish of the main event you know, simple as that. It was it was messy. And and again with Hogan and Savage, their their segments and their arguments and their mic time just goes on too long. One it's almost like they have a competition where one of them has to get the last word in. So Savage will say something, Hogan will run over to me and Gene grab the mic and say something. So then Savage feels like he has to get the last and it just goes on for a long time. And yeah, the whole way that was handled, I think could have been done. And I, I again, I appreciate what they're trying to do. You know, you must watch Nitro. There's controversy over the world title, etc. But you could have still done that in other ways. And Hogan acting like a little bitch about Savage's win and everything. It just, you know, just absolutely crap, mate. The finish was absolutely crap. So, yeah. but there we go. Hit, miss or middle in, bud. What are you thinking? Definitely, I would say middling on this. Um, I mean, uh, Middling, but on the high end, definitely. I mean, like you said, the fantastic undercards, but um, I mean, nothing else, nothing was offensive, to be honest. Um, what about you, sir? See, I, I was thinking high middle, maybe scraping into a low hit. And I think I'm probably going to literally just by the skin of its teeth have it scrape into being a hit. The main event was a mess, it was too much going on at one time. The finish to the main event was just absolutely dreadful. But I still couldn't take my eyes off it. So even the worst thing on the card, which I think was that main event and the finish, well, the worst thing on the card could potentially have been the segment that opened it as well, the silly ranting and, and dirt sheet stuff. But even that, I couldn't take my eyes off. Even that, I wasn't sat there rolling my eyes going, oh, God, have I got to sit through three hours of this crap, have I? 
even that I sat watching and I got, I got some level of enjoyment out of it on a kind of sick level, I guess. The main event, I couldn't take my eyes off. The, 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 the crappy finish and arguments afterwards, I felt like I had to watch the whole thing. I couldn't just, just turn it off at that point. I had to watch the whole thing to see what was said, what, what went on. And then you got the matches in between on the undercard, which I enjoyed all of them. Maybe not in their entirety, but all of them had moments I thought were quite good. So it literally just, as I said, by the skin of its teeth, just scrapes into hit territory for me. Not by That's much, cool. but just. Ah, <laughs> oh, great stuff. Great stuff. I've enjoyed watching this pay-per-view back with you, Danny. It's been, it's been good fun. We've yes, got, same here, sir. Oh, brilliant stuff. We've now got a couple of weeks, uh, well, a few more weeks of ordinary WCW television in Monday Nitro before we hit Starcade, which is the last pay-per-view of the year. Hopefully, by the time we get there, they will have decided what day of the week it is on. Um, as we progress with 1995, I just want to quickly say to everybody listening, thank you so, so much for the interactions you're giving us on Twitter and so on. Saying that you're watching the old WCW footage back with us, show by show, means a great deal that people would take take their valuable time and do that to follow along with our, with our little show. It means a great deal. It's hugely, hugely touching that people are doing that. Thank you so much, everybody, for the really kind feedback on what Danny and I are doing. It means a great deal. If we're getting that feedback, it means it's worth us doing. So that's I hugely appreciate that. Yeah, thank you very much. It just blows my mind every time. Exactly, mate. Exactly. It's, 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 it's genuinely touching. I love it. So thank you to everyone for that. On that note, Danny, do you want to let everybody know whereabouts they can find you? Yep, you can find me on Twitter at Scottish Juggalo. You can hear me on A Change in Attitude with the great Tanner, Ori and Mags. And you can hear me on One Man's Meet with the great Chris Bellis. And you can hear me here next week where we'll be discussing the post-World War Three Nitro with the great Cy Powell. Oh, I don't know about great, mate. I don't know about great, but thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at SJP Words. And if you rather use the book of face, you can find me there too. SJP, all the shows and info is the group you need there. From there, the Twitter and the Facebook, you get links to all the stuff I'm involved in. So that's obviously Nitro Nights here with Danny. We have Chain Wrestling live on a Monday night via the Radio Techers YouTube and Twitch channels and a podcast version that comes out later in the week. You have the Doctor Who pod I do with our good buddy Dan Griffin. The Waiting Room, a Quantum Leap podcast, looking back episode by episode of that great show with Mr. Benny Mac. But most importantly, you can find this show on Facebook and Twitter by simply searching at nitro underscore nights at nitro underscore nights but yeah you can find me at sjp words there we go we are fast heading into 1996 and all the delights that has in hand for us danny i will speak to you again very very soon bud see you next week sir and to everyone else as always thank you for listening (laughs) 